This episode is brought to you by Revolver Studios, Portland's own homegrown recording studio and music production house, run by musicians for musicians. Revolverstudios.org. This is the Portland Film Podcast, and I'm your host, Molly Silverstein. Our guest today is Barry Braverman, a veteran cinematographer with over 30 years experience working in television and film. He's a member of Hollywood Cinematographer Guild and regularly conducts camera workshops worldwide. And he recently returned from East Africa, where he led a camera and visual storytelling workshop at the Zanzibar International Film Festival. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, how was Zanzibar? Well, it, it was my uh, fourth year leading these uh, workshops. I've done quite a few, actually, in East Africa at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, I find um, leading these workshops is enormously uh, satisfying. Um, the uh, students are extremely engaged and extremely eager to learn uh, skills. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And this makes it a very satisfying place to present because I can see the effect uh, of the training instantly. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, um, uh, the one you know, having done many of these workshops around the world, I have a sense of what are the relative strengths of cinema in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, in Western countries, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on technical things. Mm -hmm. What camera you're using, what lens you're using, what... Uh, how much focus you're using, or whatever. Uh, there tends to be an emphasis, what I see, on tools, and and uh, there is, a, oftentimes, I'd say, uh, not enough focus on actors and performance. Mm -hmm. um, in Africa, I feel, because they have so little to work with in terms of equipment, to, you, know, you know, we... We don't have proper lighting. We don't have proper sets. But what they do have is um, what I see very talented, very inspired directors and actors who know how to work with the director and vice versa. So there is an emphasis on performance, which gives their films a much different quality. Mm -hmm. For example, um, uh, uh, it was about three years ago. I was asked to help to work on a film in Tanzania mm -hmm. by a very, very talented director, really talented. Uh, and um, I was looking through the script and I was mocking it, and we had all these interiors, you know, and, and I'm thinking, okay, we don't, we don't have a single working light. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How are we going to do all these interiors? <laughs> so we sat down and we thought about it, and we, I had all these guys you know, men and women, by the mm -hmm. way, around talking about this problem. But so I, I had this idea, one of my favorite cinematographers, Nesta Alamendrost, who, uh, Nesta Alamendrost is a very uh, well-known, celebrated cinematographer who, who uh, is uh, deceased, uh, died pretty young, mm -hmm. but did films like uh, Days of Heaven. Of course. Which uh, was run recently at the Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and he, was, he emphasized simplicity in how he approached the craft. Mm -hmm. 
this is another difference between American filmmaking, Western filmmaking, and um, filmmaking overseas, especially in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the simplicity at which uh, Nest Alamandros approached his work did a film called uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Great movie. Um, and uh, the opening scene is a shot of Meryl Streep uh, in, a, in the child's bedroom. And he, used, he tended to use, frequently use, just a single light and a mirror. Mm-hmm. That's it. Wow. And that's how he lit. Uh, and the advantage to operating simpli- simply like that means that a cinematographer can work very quickly. Mm-hmm. And... That helps uh, actors in the performance. Uh, it also simplifies the amount of grip equipment and uh, all the paraphernalia that goes into filmmaking that can slow the process down or can um, burden the process. So um, I got this idea in Africa that, okay, why don't we just have mirrors, just use mirrors mm-hmm. uh, to just light the scenes. Um, so uh, because there's plenty of sun outside. Right. There's plenty of light out there. There's just no light in here. Right. <laughs> um, and more important than that, um, the the set was well away from any window. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we just put together a series of teams of mirrors uh, with one team in the parking lot, one's, another team up in a fifth floor window, another team down the hall, and then another team around the turn in the hall, and then finally into the bedroom. Um, so we had five teams bouncing the light mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, parking area up into the set. And because each team was a little bit tired after a while, mm-hmm. the light would shake a little bit. And so people look at those scenes and say, how did you get that shake? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so effective. <laughs> it was so great. That was really beautiful the way they did that. Yeah, that, was the, that team number three was very tired, yeah. and I told them to hold still, and they wouldn't listen. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so that's something I learned, that you could do that, and you mm-hmm. can have just uh, these beautiful results. And, and for me, it's very satisfying because it – meant that I could bring that solution to other countries in a similar type, uh, you know, environment where they didn't have any lights and mm-hmm. give them that uh, skill set yeah. so they could um, light very large sets, actually, using this simple free uh, method. Have you always been passionate about sharing what you've learned and teaching? Yeah, I, I have because... Uh, I didn't go to film school. Uh, I didn't uh, learn in any kind of formal way. I went. I was a French major in college, mm-hmm. which is another fact, uh, another thing I, I would say to aspiring filmmakers. Uh, if you're interested in film, uh, don't study it. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you're going to do that anyway. You're going to see films every weekend, or and you're going to look to see things on Netflix, and you're going to read about it. You're going to do that anyway because that is your passion. Yeah. But very often to succeed in the business, you need other skills. Uh, language skills, very important. Uh, sports skills. Uh, my, some of my friends got into the business. One, one guy, he uh, could ski backwards down an expert slope. And so that happened to be something that a producer was looking for, that particular skill, and that gave him his start. Wow. Um, I can think of a number of cases where young people were hired by production companies because they could speak uh, the language where the, the, the movie's shooting. So, um, so it, I didn't learn in any formal way, but I was quick to um, uh, mine the uh, 
uh, knowledge of visitors or cinematographers I met mm-hmm. or editors I met. You know, I, I'd be working on a show, on my own movie, and I'd be, an editor would come to visit college campus and I would pull him aside and say, how's this look to you? What would you do? Um, so, and, I, and what that does, two things. One, you gain that, a little bit of that person's knowledge. But it also establishes a connection with that person. Mm-hmm. And so I acquired a mentor, a uh, very accomplished cinematographer. So when I was working on an independent film, he came out for a couple weeks to my house when I was living in New York. And uh, he um, uh, helped me set scenes up and light scenes. and so Because I think if you're in the business, and I think all of us, I think craftsmen in whatever discipline, I think we want to, we want to share uh, what we know. There's something very uh, essential about that to stay happy. And I've read that you are an expert at filming whales and birds. I did a lot of birds. Yeah, well, I worked for the National Geographic. Actually, the first assignment was uh, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Really? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Which uh, no one has actually filmed, really. There are some no. slides of it, of the actual major mm-hmm. eruption, because it was on a Sunday. Okay. I, but afterwards, I came you know, a couple weeks later and went up into the blast zone with the warehouser people. Oh, that's... Uh, it destroyed uh, my tripod. My brand new German tripod oh. was... My Sackler tripod was destroyed by volcanic ash. Because it gets in under there, it's... It's the same material we use to grind lenses. Oh. Uh, so it will destroy cameras, anything you bring in. That's probably why they wanted me to do it, because the regular guy didn't want to trash his equipment. So it's, they said, well, get this young guy who doesn't know what this stuff is. <laughs> yes, I've been working for National Geographic for long. Yeah, and then what happens is you, uh, that's another thing. What happens is you get known for a certain thing. Right. You get pigeonholed, sort of, mm-hmm. no pun intended, yeah. Or pun intended with the, so I was good at birds. Uh, we had, uh, I had a small group of guys. We had, um, and they were training geese as stunts. They had these Canadian geese following, um, you know, they, I, this was in New England when I was still in New England. And these Canadian geese would follow their boat. Mm-hmm. And they thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So I got this idea, well, I could use that boat to shoot out of. That's right. Because what they do is uh, they, they would feed the geese. But only uh, they would start the motor first. Mm-hmm. So when they heard the motor, they, the geese all gathered. They knew they were about to get fed. But he wouldn't feed them. He would take off in the boat, and the geese would all fly alongside the boat. Beautiful. Which was how a lot of really rather amazing shots, uh, which I became known for, w- was done. It was These geese were literally a few feet off the lake, on Lake Champlain. So Yeah. So you get known for a certain thing, and then you tend to do more. Oh, he's good on birds. Get that guy. <laughs> what is it about? Why are you good at birds? What What is it about it? Oh, because uh, why? Well, just I think part of it. I had opportunity to I had access to birds that would cooperate. Um, <laughs> you that's to meet one some thing. Nice birds. But I also like the slow motion aspect. Uh, there's something really um, almost meditative, uh, you know, shooting a bird at 500 frames per second. Mm. You know, you see every muscle and every twitch and eye blink. And and at the time, you know, that took a fair amount of resources to have a camera that that did that. Uh, So, uh, you know, what's the goal of a cinematographer? Mm -hmm. The goal of a cinematographer is to show the viewer a world they haven't seen before. 
And so with the birds, shooting a bird literally two feet from the camera lens in close-up at 500 frames per second was not something that audiences, audiences had seen before. Yeah. So what happens is audiences go, ooh, ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and when I hear an audience go, ooh, and I, I know I'm, I'll be working for the next 18 months, right? Because right? <laughs> somebody will hire me to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so uh, that's the job of the cine- cinematographer is to uh, deliver a unique perspective to the audience that's, in, that's consistent with the storytelling goals of the uh, director. And that actually very does nicely lead me into my next question. I feel like when we talk about film, you can sort of, you end up sort of hearing about the director and a couple other people. Um, and but there's so many different roles and there's so many different voices and eyes that go into making a film. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about second unit and what that's like. And well, it, it, it's different, I think, for every director. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, you know, in Wes's case, uh, he t- has a hands-on role in every single aspect, whether you're doing second unit or not. So in um, you know, in Moonrise Kingdom, we the stand-up, you know, those testimonials. Mm-hmm. You know, Wes is very very specific about what he wants, and the composition has to be his style. Right? I'm not uh, contributing or expected to contribute my unique perspective. <laughs> it's his perspective, and that's the only one that matters. But in other cases, um, uh, I think I've, uh, I feel uh, I can have a lot more leeway in how to approach uh, the visual mm-hmm. treatment. So it very much depends on the project, the director. Um, I don't know whether you can make a, in general, uh, in general, say what the role of a second unit is, but it can be the most fun on the set. I'll tell you that because you're going out with your friends, uh, a couple, you know, your team. You're waiting for sunset over the Golden Gate Bridge, or <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other things in uh, waiting in India, waiting for the train to go by, and you know, it's you're not dealing with actors, you're not dealing <laughs> with egos, you're not, you're you're really just uh, out. It's like going hunting, you know, yeah. you're on a hunting trip. And when you get it, you got it, you know it's good, then you hope the director uses it, uh, which may not happen. Yeah, well, I mean, working on a film is such a collaborative process that I can imagine that it's nice to sort of of like have an assignment and go out and do it and not have to. You know, collaboration uh, is absolutely essential, I think, uh, because uh, it's too big an undertaking to to just have one voice. It's, you can develop blind spots, uh, things can go wrong. You, you really do rely on having an um, uh, honest and uh, expansive discussion with your, uh, your collaborators. Um, I, I did a movie last year. It was the year before. I can't remember. The year before, um, the director was very young. I'm not going to tell you which movie it is, but the uh, <laughs> director was very young. Um, he refused to listen to the sound department. We were shooting over in Japan mm-hmm. in August. Uh, very humid, very yeah. humid. Uh, and there's a problem with cicadas. Cicadas are the bugs that make a mating call a certain time of the year. Right. So there's a reason why in J- Japan no movies are shot in August exteriors okay <laughs> so here we go so he wanted because of the availability of the actors and so forth so we're shooting in japan in august and the cicadas are drowning out their dialogue oh my goodness so they had like uh they tried bb guns which were illegal in japan uh they tried using uh some sort of juice some toxic 
spray, oven spray or something to shoot at the trees. <laughs> they tried setting off loud noises to scare the cicadas. They tried introducing a genetically mutated cicada to interrupt, because the, the noise they make no. is a mating call. <laughs> so uh, nothing would work. And the director, who had been warned by the sound man that this was going to be a problem, <laughs> was totally irate. He said, how can I work in this? But he, he didn't listen to the sound man when they did the scouting and the input. He was just focusing on other things. And so this became a problem. And so much of the dialogue had to be looped. And yeah. I think that probably hurt the show in the end. And because the performances are affected if everybody's dialogue has to be replaced. So you briefly mentioned Wes Anderson before. You've mm-hmm. been involved in a lot of his films, mm-hmm. um, the fir- including his first film. Oh, absolutely. Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get connected with him and that project? Oh, boy. I, uh, I know Wes through uh, Owen mm-hmm. um, okay. because I worked for Owen's dad. Uh, I was... Uh, doing uh, corporate work uh, through the 80s. And um, I was, uh, his uh, dad, Owen's dad had gone to Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had that in common. And we were working on a project for a fellowship that was being hosted by Dartmouth. There was some kind of connection like that. So I was introduced to Owen's dad. And he really liked uh, the short film I did about my dad called uh, Marita Cycles, right. which is actually Wes's, one of Wes's. He knows every line by heart. Really? Yeah. He knows every heart. <laughs> this is a half-hour film. He knows every line. Um, <laughs> and a- in fact, uh, when, uh, when we worked on the Bottle Rocket Criterion edition, mm-hmm. uh, Wes, uh, I told Wes that I said, you know, the negative is falling apart in my carport. And he said, no, we got to save that. So he, out of his own money, he had uh, Criterion collection uh restore the negative oh wow so there's a a blu-ray version of it available uh from uh from criterion collection uh that's wonderful that film became uh the basis for royal tenenbaums by the way uh so uh, and owen's dad really related to that film Mm -hmm. and uh, we started working together on a number of projects uh including ross perot's uh, campaign film he mentioned to me that his son he has, uh, was working on a script. Uh, I said, well, what's it about? He said, well, he didn't really know. but <laughs> And because I had a camera and I had a lot of equipment, he said, well, you know, why don't you take a look at it and see what you think. The script was 480 pages. Oh it was a, a bigger volume than War and Peace, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and was uh, this for the short? Is this what would well? Become it became the short? a short. We, we we actually shot a lot more than the short, but <laughs> really, uh, yeah. Uh, and then it was, it's a, so. I think I'm not sure whether anybody had any idea what it was about, uh, but uh, we started shooting it as it was, and uh, so this was over a period of several weeks uh, in uh, 1990 or 91. And uh, so we shot a lot of material. Uh, we, there was a friend in Dallas, his name was Kit Carson, the writer who wrote uh, Dallas, Texas, who uh, apparently liked it a lot. And um, so eventually uh, it landed at Gracie Films with Jim Brooks, mm-hmm. who really liked the, uh, but he said, you know, you got to cut it down. The, you know, uh, it was this long thing. Um, and so it became the 12 minutes that was shown at, uh, at Sundance, for example. And 
eventually got uh, Wes, I think Wes was 22 or 23 years old at the time, and he um, got a deal uh, based on Jim Brooks approving the script, which took a year to develop. Yeah. Uh, and eventually uh, Bottle Rocket was made. Did the feature look anything like the first Yeah, it looked, yeah, it did. Uh, although, uh, I tell you, I, I, it really evolved very, very well. I mean, Jim Brooks is probably one of the most talented guys in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the Mary Tyler Moore show we created. I love the Mary Tyler Moore show. Many of it. Many shows, uh, as good as it gets. Uh, uh, the, he's just a, he understands uh, uh, movie making and storytelling. And he worked with Polly Platt. Mm-hmm. Polly Platt, who was married to uh, Peter Bogdanovich. And she supervised uh, uh, Bottle Rocket during production. But when Bottle Rocket was completed, uh, shooting was completed, it was still pretty long. Uh, it was ran too long. But it was tested, you know, mm-hmm. how... Uh, and it scored uh, the lowest of any modern film at, up to that point. So there was the short that was 12 minutes, about 12, 13 minutes long. Right. Um, and then there's the feature, which is an hour and 45 minutes. Right. Um, and the test audiences were for the feature. Well, which was over two hours. It tested poorly, among re- many reasons for this. Uh, it was tested in Canoga Park. Mm-hmm. Where is that? <laughs> in California, in the Valley, okay. which was not known for its sophistication. Okay. Uh, not that, you know. But anyway, it was advertised as a James Conn comedy, which it isn't. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, it was just misrep. It was the wrong audience is what it was. And uh, and eventually it uh, was cut down and some scenes were reshot uh, or added or taken out and eventually became what I think is a real gem, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it's a, I learned a lot. I learned a lot on that show, uh, really. Uh, I learned a lot about how Wes works because he was exactly the same then as he is today. I mean, in terms of the artistic vision. Uh, and, you know, it helps to be a genius. And so the short did really well at mm-hmm. Sundance. How about the feature? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, this is, this is it's not, you know, this is one of those things that I don't, can't quite figure out what happened. I know it was incredibly disappointing that Sundance turned the feature down, mm. would not show it. I don't know what the reason was. I suspect they didn't think it was independent film anymore. Yeah. Um, so... It was disappointing uh, to everybody. Yeah, and how did how did Wes react to that? Oh, we were everybody was disappointed. Sure. We yeah, we babied it from really from the beginning. Um, yeah, um, we couldn't fi- quite figure it out. Uh, I don't think anybody could. But uh, nevertheless, I think it did hurt the prospects when it was the film was released. It was released mm-hmm. on less than fifty screens. Oh wow! Um, but you know, it's funny how. In time, people have rediscovered it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at the time, it just was not handled properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a problem, I think, that studios have with smaller films that studios can handle, I, in my opinion, you know, blockbusters very well. They just can't handle small, intimate films all that well. Especially in, the, in marketing them. I mean, to market Bottle Rocket as a James Conn comedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just wrong. It's just it's wrong. wrong. It's just you yeah. would feel you're setting, you guys were kind of set up for disaster because that's not. That's not what, what it is. That's not you what it is. You got the wrong audience, and then people say, hey, what is this? I, I, I was told this was going to be a James Conn comedy. Well, but it just shows you that uh, the marketing people are just out of touch or, yeah. or were in that particular case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but you're absolutely right. I mean, now 
Ball Rock. It's a really highly respected film. Oh, absolutely. And, it's really very solid mm-hmm. uh, film. It is. It's, be- it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that Wes Anderson is very strategic in how he does things, and he was he like that even then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, we disagreed on something on uh, Bottle Rocket, and um, and he, I don't think he ever forgot it. <laughs> he mentions it uh, sometimes. Really? <laughs> um, any collaboration, if it's a true collaboration, it, it, there has to be a difference of opinion in certain you know, cases, just has to be. But, you know, I will say this, that things that I thought weren't right, he was right. He was right. Does that's, that happen a and lot? I'm, I'm gonna, it does happen a lot. <laughs> uh, that's something I learned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, Stick to I, your guns. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, because, uh, I mean, you run into a lot of resistance. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Wes is, I think, uh, you know, I have to admire, and I continuously admire how much adversity he's had to overcome, especially early, early in his career. Mm-hmm to uh, do things his way, which now is he's celebrated for. But yeah, that absolutely. was not the case early on. No, oh, I'm sure it wasn't. I mean, boy, are we glad that he does things his way. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think anybody else is doing it. Uh, he, I think he's uh, in a class by himself uh, these days. Um, and uh, I think he's come a long way, uh, really. And uh, uh, he stayed true to his vision, and he's much more comfortable with it, I think, you look at the confidence, the self-confidence he showed in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. It's a lot of that's a confident filmmaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so you and you mentioned the film that you directed, um, Rita Cycles. Mm-hmm. That was in the late seventies. Yeah, I mean, um, I always wanted to do more independent films. Unfortunately, I started to become more. Uh, uh, I started to find more work uh, shooting, so I stop doing it, but I, I, I would like to get back into doing my own projects. Would you? Yeah, I mean, you know, good scripts are hard to come by, right? Yeah. Um, You're not interested in writing a script? Oh, I have. Yeah? I have. I have, uh, yeah, I have a TV series that I'm pushing that currently. So few movies are actually being made mm-hmm. uh, that uh, pretty much everybody in the industry has now moved into television where the good stuff's really being made. Yeah. Uh, which means that's attracting the best writers, the best directors. So it's a very, very competitive time, to, to say the least. A very tough time. Friends of mine who are in development at one of the studios, television uh, development, mm-hmm. he was saying he um, reads 30, between 30 and 40 scripts per weekend. Oh, my goodness. That's how much he's reading, and these are scripts that have been sent by agents, not you know, you know somebody right. somebody who's been referred to him. Yeah. So uh, it's a it's a very competitive time, um, but at the same time, uh, I think we're in a golden era for uh, television. You look at the quality of the work that's oh, being absolutely. done. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you know, what can a filmmaker do to stand out? What kind of what kind of filmmaker do to stand out? If you know, there's all these scripts and there's all of this again original vision. See, this is why uh, someone who comes with a fresh perspective show me a world I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. I think uh, True Detective was like that. Absolutely, uh, season one. Season one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, uh, 
Sopranos too, right? Uh, you, these, some of these series are just so well sketched, and it comes out of the mind of a single individual who has a very clear vision uh, and is true to that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and that's what I think should be uh, taught at schools and in workshops: how to develop that vision. Because uh, I think most of us, uh, especially in working in film and television, we we have a vision that goes beyond, uh, you know, how to load magazines and put them on the camera or how to offload your memory cards. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not really what the business is about. We might get paid to do that uh, as a part of the craft, but we're, most of us have, you know, story ideas we're kicking around or we're really kind of frustrated storytellers. So the question is, you know, how do you develop those ideas, how to bring them forward, mm-hmm. uh, and, which is what I do in the workshops, really, and to do it in a, vi- in a visual context. Mm-hmm. How do you know you have a good story? Yeah. How do you know that? Yeah. So and those are the kinds of things we cover in the workshop. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a camera person, you need to know what the story is. Uh, if you're sh- if if I have to do a close up, I need to know whether it's a comedy or a drama. Right. Right. Because no. uh, if you're uh, shooting a comedy, the close up might be you know chest high, whereas if a drama, the close up might be chin. You know, right. a, we call it a choker close up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, everybody needs to know what the story is uh, on a sh- on a show, and uh, we I need to know, for example, where are the set pieces in the show. Mm. What are the moments in the show where audiences are going to remember and talk about when they leave the theater? Yeah. So I need to know that because I know I, I know the director will put most of the emphasis in those scenes. So as a camera person, I know I have to treat those scenes differently. Yeah. Uh, very often I, I'll need to slow the visual pacing down to tell the audience this is important. Right. Right. It's it's the like the the zoom in, the slow zoom in on the murderer who's about to confess. Yeah. Right? The cinematographer is saying, I gotta I have to slow the story down because this is important. Yeah, absolutely. I, whereas normally we cut in to the close up mm-hmm. because it's quicker. Uh, audiences don't have patience. But if you're deliberately slowing the story down, you're adding emphasis to the, to that aspect of the story. Um, and so you're you're teaching a workshop for the film festival. Uh, yes, here. I am. Um, do, what, is it a visual storytelling workshop? Or? Yeah, uh, I, that's the approach, and uh, I think uh, we will. I, well, I know we'll have a lot of fun. So, do you have any advice for cinematographers and like how to work with directors? Don't do what I did in my early days, <laughs> which was <laughs> which was. Um, I think be too uh, dogmatic. Uh, I think uh, the idea of collaboration, uh, the benefit of it is uh, you gain the input from your collaborators. If you don't make it a safe environment for your collaborators to offer that opinion, you won't get the opinions that you desperately need, but don't think you need. Right. So I would say for cinematographers to, uh, even directors who seem nuts, uh, <laughs> there are a few of those around who truly are nuts, but even <laughs> ones who only seem nuts, give. it's important to give that director uh, the space. Because sometimes directors cannot uh, articulate in, in visual terms what they're looking for. They can only articulate a feeling. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why it's important to listen to what the 
the story goals are and to offer a number of options, preferably, um, uh, different treatments, color treatment. And I try to get involved in uh, some of the casting decisions, and not mm-hmm. all directors welcome that. The most important job for a director is to get the casting right mm-hmm. and get the performance right. Yeah. Uh, directors who uh, concern themselves with, you know, what's on the craft service table probably is not paying attention to the right things. Right. Um, And so is your advice for directors dealing with cinematographers the same? You know, everybody's valuable on a set, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Everybody's role is essential on a set. For a director, it's absolutely important to learn everyone's name. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's as simple as that. There's a section in my book about working with difficult people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of those in this business, I have to say. Um, I was one of them, so that uh, I was pretty bad, I'm sorry to say. But you're reformed? I'm a reformed uh, prick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to say uh, it. Hopefully, I'm a reformed. <laughs> I mean, you've said, listen, what are some of the things that a director and a cinematographer can do to improve that communication? Well, I, I think one way is for um, for directors to include the cinematographer in story uh, discussions, not only in the storyboarding. Storyboarding is absolutely essential because it helps. It's like the blueprint for a house. Yeah. Uh, Wes walks around with his notebook uh, with pencil sketches. Um, and... Uh, he really, you know, it's part of a director being prepared. When you're prepared, a director uh, has the scene laid out, blocked out uh, before the day of the set. Mm-hmm. A director should not be shopping the day of the show. This mm-hmm. is too much to manage. So, uh, yeah, I would say that my recommendation to a director is uh, make sure you've done your homework, make sure the storyboards are uh, created and also shared with the with the department heads, not only the cinematographer, but the sound department, um, and uh, bring everyone in because problems can uh, develop on the sound side uh, or can develop on the picture side, like shooting in the middle of the day with a bright sun. You know, that can impact uh, the show. So a lot of times I'll look at the script and, you know, if it says day, I'll say, well, can we shoot it, you know, later in the day? Mm -hmm. Does it look better? No. So... There's a lot of input uh, that the department heads can have, the cinematographer can have, especially if when the story is communicated and we communicate the story uh, in visual terms in the storyboard. Hmm. Well, I mean, Wes Anderson certainly likes to storyboard. I mean, oh, I yeah. <laughs> um, so I know, I mean, you've offered so much advice, so much advice over the course of this interview, and I really appreciate it. Do you have any uh parting words of advice that you'd like to offer that you haven't gotten the chance to say, maybe? Well, I I would say, uh, you know, this business is uh, supposed to be fun. I guess one of the struggles that I see in this business, it's difficult to achieve balance. Being gone from family for a long time and being overseas... You know, it's like the, wet, the best and the worst at the same mm-hmm. time. You're, you have opportunities that no one else has. I was in the Arctic. You know, I shot a lot of polar bears and all this. And you're kind of, I was kind of wondering, I remember being in the Beaufort Sea in winter. 
And <laughs> there's no sunrise. They call it twilight rise and twilight set. And this is really narrow orange stretch on the on the horizon where the sun is. So it's, it's not coming up, but it's teasing you. Yeah. you know? <laughs> and I was thinking, boy, I'm actually getting paid to be here. You know, and it's I'm special. thinking, yeah, it is special. And and at the same time, there's kind of a a price you pay for your personal relationships because you're not paying attention to what's going on at home, right? So that's why I think the balance is a real, real challenge. Um, So if you can kind of keep track or be mindful of those around you you love at the same time pursuing the passion that you love, then you've achieved something. I mean, that's difficult to achieve. Some people have done that. Yeah. Uh, one person I admired in the business was Paul Newman. Absolutely. He's yeah. like a, a model of that. Yeah, he's sort of, right? Yeah. I mean, and he really is that way. He, he was really, uh, you know, a philanthropist and treated the crew well and knew everybody's name. And it was just very, as a director particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just, uh, even when I was, worked with him on a project in the 80s, when I was on the camera department, mm-hmm. and I came back, I went out and bought popcorn. I came back with Rickenbacker popcorn mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of Paul Newman popcorn. <laughs> I mean, you thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so I guess the thing is, I think there are people around who are inspiring. Mm-hmm. You want to seek those people out and work with those people. Yeah. Uh, and they that makes it worth it, you know, um, and try to... Uh, and try to uh, manage the hardships of it, um, especially personal relationships, try to manage that um, and somehow um, keep it from becoming all-consuming, yeah. which I see on these shows, uh, I think, a lot. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's definitely a reality. That oh, yeah, well, in with. larger productions, you know, you've gone for months. and So, yeah, I think you have to have an inner strength to... Uh, to persevere and developing that inner strength comes from um, just saying and committing yourself to strong personal relationships that are not in the movie business or not in TV. Mm, yeah, you know? absolutely. So you have some perspective. So when That's you go home, smart. somebody can say, you know, you're really full of crap. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, if, if anyone can take away any piece of advice, it's have someone that can tell you that you're full of it. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. You can find Barry's book, Video Shooter, at Powell's, Amazon, and on his website, barrybraverman.com. Barry will be teaching a professional camera and visual storytelling workshop at the 2016 Portland Film Festival from Wednesday, August 31st, 2016 to Friday, September 2nd. In addition, the festival is also hosting a number of workshops for actors, writers, and directors, including screenwriting workshops with Leslie Dixon and Laurie Craig. For more information and to purchase tickets, please visit portlandfilmfestival.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at theportlandfilmpodcast.com. The Portland Film Podcast is a Portland Film Festival production, produced and edited by Misty Eddy. Our associate producer is Sean Conley, sound engineer Paul Dillon, and I'm Molly Silverstein. See you next time.